You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey, uh, listen, guys, first of all, hi, welcome to the episode. Here we go. Secondly, I've got Andrew Ant on the show today. And Andrew and I got to know each other a couple of ways. When I wrote MLA, we connected through that. And I've, I've done a little bit of work at uh, his church, New Life. Then I started to discover that actually every human I've met at New Life Church is amazing. <laughs> uh, and Andrew's in that category. Uh, but by golly, then he wrote a book. Andrew's book is All Flame. And what can I say about this book? Well, just descriptively, Andrew is writing about how just just a path, uh, an invitation to engage the entire Trinity of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in a way that is accessible. It's not weird. It's challenging. Andrew obviously uses the metaphor of flame and refinement. He digs into pain, one of my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. And and I just say, Andrew, I don't mean to make you blush here, but um, it's beautifully written. And Andrew's Thanks. a craft with words. So thanks. Um, also, I guess a few more creds. So Andrew's one of the pastors at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. Many of you know, you know Brady Boyd, who's the lead pastor there. Uh, Andrew's also the host of the Essential Church podcast, which is another great podcast Mm -hmm. uh, for church leaders. And I don't mind saying, Andrew, the quality of your guests lately have just been, you know, wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I was on it. So, hey. Hey, man. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. We've had some good ones lately, and we've got some really good ones to come, too. Yeah, it's a great it's a great podcast. Mm. Um, so yeah, Andrew, welcome to the show. Let's Thanks. let's just get right into it. Obviously, my primary listeners are church leaders, mm-hmm. and as I've been listening to church leaders, and I as I pay attention to my own struggle, I, I notice I think one of the things we struggle with as leaders is we can we can move into being better at proclaiming the love of God than encountering it for ourselves. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think that's, I think it's absolutely true. I think that probably as church leaders, we don't, we're not always aware of the ways in which we need to be loved by God. Um, the, the unique positions that I think leadership puts us in and some of the vulnerabilities, you know, that it exposes us to until all of a sudden we're in a situation of crisis or great or great pain. So I don't, I don't think that most leaders are setting out to be intentionally duplicitous, right? you know, where they're proclaiming the love of God, but not experiencing it. I just think that it's an occupational hazard of ministry that you're going, 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 and you, and you're always kind of living off of your experiences of the love of God that you have had. And you're not aware of the ways in which your own life is being stretched and your soul is being stretched. And so you need to even be loved by God in new ways. Some of your old maybe inconsistencies, gaps in character, vulnerabilities are being exposed. And so, I don't know. I, I, I think that probably in, an, in a perfect world, our, our formation is way ahead of our ministry. Yeah. But in some ways, the ministry is pushing us to places where new frontiers of our formation are being illuminated and enlightened and where we need, to, we need God to touch us in new ways because we're becoming new people as we're doing this. Yeah. You know, it's stretching us. Like I think of Gregory of Nyssa's thing in the fourth century where he said that the life of faith just is an infinite stretching out towards God, which sounds romantic. But when you're you're in it, it really hurts. It actually is like ministry is expanding who we are. 
which means that there's more terrain of our lives. I think that needs to be loved by God and it needs to, it needs to be subject to the work of the Holy spirit. So I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think that most leaders are being duplicitous. They're just, I think that they're just not uh, aware of the ways in which their formation needs to catch up with what they're saying. You know, I, I really appreciate you making sure that we're making clear we're not accusing someone of anything. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I think most faith leaders I know, as much as pastors are getting a bad rap nowadays, right? the overwhelming majority of faith leaders I know are people of good intent, good heart, passionate. Yes. yes. But somehow it's like, the, like I, had a, I had an older faith leader tell me when I was sharing with him my struggle, like, listen, the, I love lead pastoring. And also it's like hazardous to my soul. Yes. Uh, the pressure of it, the public nature of it. And what he told me and it worried me and I appreciated it at the same time, he said, you sacrifice your relationship with God so others can have one. Hmm. And I was like, oh. Hmm. And so he, that was, that's a good example. He wasn't being duplicitous. He was actually suggesting hmm. that this is a sacrifice you make. And I thought, oh, yes. that doesn't sound right. I, I get it, but I, I can't live that way. I have to be living out of the overflow. Mm, and maybe uh, it's a, what a comment to make. Yeah, it makes me think about Paul's thing about be about living your life as it's a living sacrifice. Yeah. So there, and I do feel that way. It feels as though in ministry, I'm constantly placing myself on the altar, yeah. and my life is going up in flames in some way. But then, just at the point when you think, well, it's over, and I've got nothing more to give, there's a resurrection moment. The Lord gives you your, He gives you back to yourself, <laughs> so that you can offer yourself up to Him afresh, you know, and to the people afresh. So there's something. If we think of that as an end, like you, you sacrifice your relationship with God, um, that that's like a destination point, you know, or that the story's over at that point. I think that that's not a healthy way to think about it. Yeah. But if we think about it as an ongoing kind of thing. That makes sense to me. I, that rings true for my experience. You know, it would be, I mean, I think about it all the time. I'm sure you do too. I think about, I told somebody during COVID last year that like my new favorite, like my life verse became that verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. You know, I would flee from this place of danger, far from whatever. And I think we feel that in ministry. I mean, there's a, there's a part of us that just goes, man, wouldn't it be nice to just like go up to the mountains, find a little cabin, become like a hermit, a desert father, and we just pray and cultivate this interior repose and all of that. But I think a more profound form of holiness is trying to live that inside of the task of daily life and the demands that the Lord places on you in daily life. It's a very Eugene Peterson vision. Just yeah. the absolute grounded reality of the daily mundane of the pastor trying to notice God and help people notice God. Yes, exactly. I agree. Yeah. What elements of being a pastor do you particularly find challenging to your health? Like I'll, I'll go first. I love theology. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways I worship is by reading theology and enjoying just somebody taking me to the connection to God through words. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a preacher, I'm under the constant pressure to deliver theology. Yeah. And I find that I twist the gift of God, which is enjoying God through theology, mm. into the work for God of, oh, I better deliver a message. That mm. would be one example for me that I've, as I've really tried to pay attention to what is it about ministry that mm. challenges my own engagement with God? That would be one is I'm, I'm not receiving anymore. I'm always passing on. Yes. So a few years ago, I made a vow to stop passing on everything I was learning. Yes. 
What, what would be something for you? I think the pressure to be on. I think that that really will wear me out sometimes. Sometimes I just want to be with people and I don't want to have a profound word to say and I don't want to have to lead the meeting and I don't want to have to think about all that I have to think about. You know, when you're in a, I mean, worship changes for you in profound ways when you become a pastor. You don't have the luxury of just kind of sliding in and being a receiver. You do need to still be a receiver when you slide into worship, but you're also overseeing. You're trying to see with prophetic vision, Lord, what are you doing in this worship space? What are you doing in the hearts and the lives of these people? How can I stay dialed into you? And so many moments of a minister's life are, they just demand that. You know, I mean, Eugene Peterson, one of the books of Peterson's that marked me profoundly in my early years of ministry was Working the Angles, um, where he talks about how ministry is a ministry of spiritual, all ministry is a ministry of spiritual direction. And so that's listening to the Lord in the text of scripture. It's listening to the Lord in the lives of people in front of you. And it's listening to the Lord in your personal life. Well, that second one, listening to the Lord in the lives of the people in front of you, it demands that you're on. And that's so if, when I'm counseling individuals, when I'm leading a staff meeting, when I'm having one-on-ones with my staff, when I'm sitting in another meeting, when I'm leading worship, the onness of it, I think is probably the most taxing thing for me. And so I have to, I have become, Steve, I've become fanatical about protecting the spaces in my life where I don't have to be on and also making sure that I'm engaging relationships consistently where I don't have to be on, where the guard can be all the way down. I don't, I'm not, it's not an asymmetrical relationship where I'm giving you something or doing something for you. I can just be vulnerable and real. And this is who I am. And I love your thing too, about, about not feeling the need to be productive with everything that we receive from God. I made the same kind of vow years ago. I just found Steve that everything I was like my devotional time and all of my theological reading, I was always thinking, how can I use this? Yeah. And that was not good for me. Yeah. It was not good for me at all. It turned all of a sudden this, the task of preaching became like this thing that eclipsed everything and reached into every area of my life. And I just needed to get some spaces back where it's like, this is not for the purpose of anything other than the Lord washing my feet, ministering to me, nourishing my soul. So to your question, I've become fanatical about those spaces where I don't have to be on. I'm just, I am just an object of the Lord's affection. (laughs) You know, I can have the guard all the way down, but the pressure to be on, I think is the thing that's most draining for me. I love, I love that you mentioned that. I was fly fishing a couple of weeks ago up in Estes Park because, you know, you and I both live in Colorado Mm -hmm. and uh, I was just in Oklahoma on Monday Mm -hmm. with these amazing spirit-filled people. I was at a church doing some some of my anxiety work and man, these people were wonderful. But I just thought to myself, how can they connect with God in Oklahoma? Is that even... (laughs) (laughs) If you can do it there, you really are a saint. Yes, I, that's, that's right. So here we are in Colorado. So I was, I was any, any, any idiot can do it in Colorado, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was up at Estes Park and just, you know, the elk and the mountains and, and the trout. Mm-hmm. And I had a fishing guide. I was trying to learn a new style of fly fishing. So I, I paid a guy to help me. And by golly, was he dropping the F-bomb on a pretty regular basis. And, you know, at some point he gets around to, we've talked about trout. And now, well, what do you do, Steve, for a living? Oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. And to your your point about being on, my favorite thing 
is like, because I was very much off that day. And I thought, well, I'll tell him I'm a pastor. Because sometimes I'll say, well, I'm a consultant or, you know, I'll kind of cop out to stay off. And my favorite thing about that encounter is I said, I'm a pastor. I, I, I lead a church and I help people figure out God and help them discover the love of God. And, and it's like the joy of my life. And then he didn't change his language one bit. And I almost gave him a hug through the waiters. I'm like, thank you. Amazing. Yeah. For just being exactly you. Yeah. Um, didn't, didn't even blush. It was, it was really refreshing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the way that you, the way that you talked about who you are didn't put him in a different space. I like yeah. that. I mean, like the crossing of the threshold into understanding who you were and what you did for a living. I guess for him, it didn't feel like, oh, okay, oh, now, we're, now we're doing something else. Now there are new rules of engagement. Right. That, I mean, good on you, Steve. That's a, that's a sign of integrity, I think. I mean, and that's the thing I tell you, that's the thing that I'm wrestling with, I feel like right now is, you know, like, uh, like Brennan Manning talked about uh, the imposter. Yeah. The, the false self that yeah. shows up when we're feeling insecure, when we feel like we have something to prove. So what I'm learning now is that there is a difference, though, between being on in the way that we need to be on or aware, present, you know, and having the imposter show up that feels like they have to do something and make the world right and all of that. And, and I, do, I do think that there's a way of being on that still is true to Matthew 11. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah. But that's to me, that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a growth edge that a lot of leaders aren't living into. You know, they have this whole sort of facade that they put on for ministry. That's toxic. It'll destroy you over time. So I, I, I think I'm trying to come to grips with like, what's that fine line? between being on in a way that's full of the Holy Spirit, that's anchored in Jesus and being on in a way that is, it's the imposter, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, early in the book, you know, all flame, you, you set this metaphor between uh, Joseph and Lot, these early church monks or abbots, right? Yeah. Yeah. The desert fathers. Yeah. Monks. The desert fathers. And just the, the image that, that you stretch out your hands and, all 10 fingers were flame. And what I love is you pretty quickly move us into the metaphor where you challenge this almost youth groupy notion of being on fire for God. Yeah. And your, your caution is, Hey, not so fast. Like it doesn't feel great to be on fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. About that. <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I come from a charismatic Pentecostal background and I yeah. think we associated being on fire for God with a certain constellation of really charged up emotions, Yeah, or, you know, or positive feelings in my devotional time. And I'm feeling a lot of inspiration in worship and I feel a lot of passion for people and I'm always evangelizing. And so it was like a lot of, it was positive feelings, which I've come to, I've come to see that that's, that's everywhere in the tradition. And those are not bad things. It's good to have those, you know, um, uh, Ignatius called them their consolations and lots of people talk their consolations, spiritual consolations. But yeah. I think we did not have language for understanding the depth of the spirit's work in our lives. And as often as not, I think the spirit comes to us, not just as positive gooey emotions, but the spirit comes to us in ways that are really painful for us. Like they're, they're burning down structures and ways of thinking and being in our lives that stand opposed to the kingdom of God. So I try in all flames to kind of turn the language of being on fire for Jesus or on fire with the spirit on its head and say to people, okay, now those places in your life where you really are 
in pain, where you're experiencing discomfort in some way, don't see those as something less than the kingdom advancing in your life. It might actually be that those places of deep pain where you're running up against inconsistencies in your character, patterns of behavior that are consistently like really harming you, or you're just walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is collapsing around you. God, being the God that he is, a God who is not one thing among many things in the cosmos, but the God who is the ground of all thinghood, and therefore in him we live and move and have our being, he's not bracketed out of those experiences. In fact, he's intensely present inside those experiences of deep pain to purify you and make you holy. The task is to submit yourself to that purifying work of the Spirit. So part of the, the task of what I felt like the call of all flame was, was, was to just help people claim more of their lives as the arena of the work of God and to give them language for making sense of it. So that idea of being on fire with the spirit was one of those places for sure. That's what I loved about the book is you, I think you really do challenge us to, I, I think that that language of uh, being on fire, it sounds more like a Marvel cinematic universe superhero thing. Yeah. You, you're really inviting us to be exactly human human size. Yes. In our engagement with an exactly God-sized God. And uh, I found that to be a beautiful invitation. Yeah. And to try to claim it and to try to claim what being on fire for God looks like as this is not, it's not just uh, warm, positive, gooey emotions all the time. It's love. Yeah. It's genuinely selfless love that you have, as Ronald Rauheiser says, you've, you've, the pleasure principle has been broken in your life. You're not living for yourself anymore, but you're living for the love of God and you're living for the love of others. Well, we're born into this world, pretty selfish beings. And everything in our culture teaches us to live for ourselves. It reinforces that selfishness. So given that that is the case, the process of God breaking that down in us is going to inevitably be very painful. But the final result is that we will be all flame. And that does not mean that we just have these positive gooey emotions all the time. It means that we're dedicated to God and dedicated to other people and that we're doing it, we're doing it with joy, you know? Yeah. You, you open up quite a bit about your own pain. Yeah. Uh, at the, the previous church in Denver that you were working in mm -hmm. as, as the lead pastor. Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of that or what's come, what, you know, what you're willing to share. Cause I think every leadership person of faith I know in a church has a pain story Yeah, and it can either burn us up or forge us, you know, some yeah. fire forges and some consumes. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's an experience you want to share with us about that? Well, we, uh, we moved to Denver in 2009 to help some friends plant a church. Um, they had a group of 50 or 60 people gathered and, um, the folks who were leading it were not pastors by trade and so needed somebody to come alongside and help. And we just felt like the time was right for us to um, to take a risk. I was serving as an associate pastor at a church in Oklahoma at the time. And uh, we had three little kids and it was like, and I was in my late twenties and uh, had full of dreams and ideals, you know, and it was like, this is the moment we're going to like move to what feels like a far flung edge of Christendom, you know, like Denver's not a super churchy culture. Nope. So and it was a very, it's not a churchy culture. And it's a, it was a very urban group, you know, a lot of young people, skeptics and all of that. It just felt like that's the right next move for us. So we moved out in 2009 and I'd been so influenced by here's, here comes Eugene Peterson again. I'd been so influenced by Peterson, like that idea of like, try to find a city, try to find a group of people um, that you love and go die there. You know, so when we moved to Denver, 
I thought for sure that the Lord was calling us to 30 years mm-hmm. of ministry in Denver. And that was kind of this, to me, that, that it was like the symbol of like a life's work of ministry. Like we're moving here in our late twenties, around 60 years old. I'll start stepping off the stage and handing it off, but this is what I want to do. And, and the Lord created a really beautiful work. It was amazing. It was a very idealistic church. We called ourselves a charismatic, liturgical, neo-monastic, justice driven. Had it all. Had, had it all. all. Network of house churches. And it was, and it, Steve, it was, it was fun because when it started to really gain traction in 2012, 13, 14, word kind of got out about this cool church in Denver that was doing this neat stuff. And it was so personal to me what we were doing mm-hmm. that I easily and naturally stepped into that identity. So it was fun being identified as, oh, that, oh, you're the Bloom guy. Right. We've heard of you, you know, tell us about your house churches. How do you do that? Tell us about liturgy. How are you blending the contemplative and the charismatic together? You know, uh, what about justice? What are you guys doing in the city? I, I was that guy and it just felt like this is awesome. So I'm five years into it, six years into it, just thinking, this is great. Like I'm going to ride off into the sunset as like the, the bloom guy. We were coaching pastors around the country and even around the world, you know, getting calls from folks going to, you know, we want to copy your model, like show us. Yeah. And so I, I loved all that stuff. And then we went through some really significant and difficult leadership transitions in 14 and 15 that um, were challenging for us personally, challenging for us on the level of our leadership and represented, I think, a real storm for us. And so we buckled down, my wife Mandy and I did. And, um, and rode that season out, tried to listen carefully to the Lord, like, what are the right next steps? And we felt like the ship got righted and the church started to pull itself back into a really healthy place in spring and summer of 16. And I remember this like it was yesterday, Steve. I remember looking around at the, at the church. I was standing in a worship service and I was thinking to myself, in so many ways, this is what, like what we're doing, what we're in the middle of right now is everything that we've ever dreamed of. And why do I feel more disoriented than I've ever felt here? Mm-hmm. I want to do 30 years here, but somehow it's just not, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling that in the same way. And it's a very long story, but over the next several months, we came to the very firm conclusion, and it was very painful for me to come to this realization, but we came to the conclusion that the Lord was calling us to lay down that ministry and move on. And um, so that unfolded over the next several months. And by the spring of the next year, 17, we had moved on to a new assignment here in Colorado Springs. That was the most I think it was the most difficult personal thing I've ever been through. Like letting that go, laying that down for me felt like a stripping away of an identity. And I remember telling Bloom the last message that I preached for them before I left. I said, you know, the thing that makes this so difficult for me is that this was never a job for me. I was grateful to get paid. It meant that I could devote all of my time to this, but it was never a job for me. Like this was like being your pastor was like, if you said to Andrew Arndt, Andrew Arndt, if you could do anything with your life that gives like the truest expression to like who you are and what you believe in, I said, I would do exactly what I've done with you guys for the last seven years. I would do this church in this city in this way. So leaving this behind is not leaving a job. It's like leaving an identity behind. And I spent the next couple of years, I mean, at 17, 18 and into 19 was like grieving the loss of that. And also discovering that in that stripping away, yeah in the stripping away of being the cultural carrier, in that stripping away of being the guy who was in charge, the first voice in the room, all that stuff. It really, like, uh, Carl Bart has this great thing 
where he says in one of his books, one of his church dogmatic volumes, he says that God will burn us right down to faith. And that, like that, oh. <laughs> and we all walk through seasons like that, where it feels like all of the trappings of our lives, all of the things that made us who we are, the things that we lean on to secure a sense of identity. When you walk through seasons where all of that is stripped away and you're burned down to the most essential elements of your life, there's, that's a purifying thing. And it's really good for you. It's really good. So I, it was, that was hard, man. And I feel like there has been a rediscovery of who, so who really is Andrew Arndt, you know, through all of that, through that stripping away, a burning process. Mm-hmm. I think Andrew, as I'm listening to you really, you know, having read the book and just even now in real time, listening to the way you talk about your life and the work of God, I'm just so grateful for the gift of nuance. You really have a gift of, of, fleshing out like a lot of people would share that story in a more dichotomy language like well the church was an idol but it's not that simple right. that simple that like i don't think pastoring is the only vocation where your vocation is so yeah. fiercely personal but it is fiercely personal for pastors i think i think that's why criticism hurts us more because yeah you're not criticizing the ministry you're criticizing the way we do the ministry and yeah and so just i think the gift you just gave us is is showing us what it's like when a pastor is all in on a vision it's getting realized yes. it's not just words it was actually happening at bloom yes. Pe- people are rightly reaching out and saying, teach us. And, and on, there's a part of you that's like, oh, I like being noticed. But there's also a part of you just saying, I would love to be helpful to you. Yes. Um, the other thing I love about this is you're almost describing a burnout story without the burnout. Mm. Be- because I've become the anxiety guy, I get a lot of questions now about how do you avoid burnout. And more and more, I respond by saying, why are you trying to avoid it? Because there's resurrection on the other side. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you burned out, but you definitely had a death and burial and resurrection experience yeah. as a pastor. Yeah. Um, so you described the 17, 18, even into 19, the grief. Yeah. When for you, p- part of what you wrote about in the book, this is the point where I remind my listeners that I ask the world's most convoluted questions. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You got to listen. They, they need to listen to the Essential Church podcast because I, <laughs> I think I can match you in that. <laughs> you write about in the book that the, the, your own desert experience of not hearing from God, not sensing the presence of God for quite a while. Mm. But you also share that is, that's part of the whole journey. Mm. Mm-hmm. When did the sky start becoming blue again? And when did you really start to feel alive again in your vocational ministry? Oh, man, I, that's, a, that's a good question. I think it's been in the last, uh, I, I want to say actually the last six months. And I, that's not going to be great consolation to your folks that are listening because if they're... I think that's tracking, really, I think that's great consolation. If they're tracking with the timeline, then that's like three years it took. It was, the grief was that, that deep for me, Steve. I, I would have I, I, just long periods of time where I was just, I was just sad and I didn't know what to do about it. I was sad at the loss of that work that I liked so much. I was sad about losing the contact with those friendships that I had in Denver. I was sad that the, um, that the identity that was so meaningful for me had been stripped away. And so I, I for years here, you know, I'd sit out on my porch and just, you know, in prayer and just go, God, what happened? Yeah. 
and, or go on long walks, listening to sad music, <laughs> just, just crying and pouring my heart out to God. And I'll tell you what, Steve, one of the temptations when we're walking through seasons like that is that we want to manufacture a resurrection for ourselves. Mm. And so I think a constant thing that I felt, I mean, it, it felt like every six months or so after I was, we moved out here in June of 17, it felt like every six months or so I would have, I would start, I would find like some bit of my subconscious was concocting a comeback scheme. Okay. I know what I need to do. You know, I'm going to have this conversation and that conversation and we're going to move to here and I'm going to plant the church or whatever. I was just constantly doing that. And it wasn't, I just felt like every time I got to that, the Lord was like, sit down, Mm. but just stop, stop manufacturing your own resurrection here. This is like a Holy Saturday for you. And Jesus doesn't raise himself from the dead. You know, it's the spirit of the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead you know, like I, I am in charge of those moments of new fruitfulness for you. So just be in this moment. And I, I came to appreciate that, like that, those feelings, like the grief that I felt, that was actually a good thing. That was like, that was my, my love for that work and those people. And it was just expressing itself in like a new, a new way. It was the same song, but modulated into a new key or something, you know? So just going through that, I, I, that, that was good for me that embracing the grieving process was really good. And honestly, it's really been in the last six months that I feel like a lot of joy has come back. I'm now the lead pastor of New Life East, one of our newest congregations of New Life Church. Um, we'd launched on Super Bowl Sunday last year, back in 20. And the Lord is doing such a marvelous thing. And I was so, I remember telling Pastor Brady when he first started asking me about this, he was like, would you like to be the, you know, would you consider being the planting pastor for New Life East? And I remember telling him, Brady, I'm just not sure if I can love again. Yeah. In the same way that I love those people and love that work, I don't want to put myself or the, this, or you in a false position where I'm being the pastor of these people, but I'm dead inside. Mm-hmm. And he was so wise and kind. He was like, you know, I just, I think for you, you will start, you'll find your heart coming alive again when you're actually surrounded by people and surrounded by the work and you're actually having to engage in the work of the care of souls again. Yeah. I think your heart's going to come back alive. And that has proven to be the case. Now I look out on Sunday at this beautiful group of people that the Lord has gathered. And I'm so grateful that my own spirit has come back alive in the work of pastoral ministry. And I'm engaging, um, I'm engaging my calling but doing it in a different way than I, that I, than I did the first time around, you know, in Denver, that was as, as beautiful and good as all those things were, there was still so much of that. That was the ego dream of a young man trying to prove himself. And, um, that died a really hard death. (laughs) And here now on the East side of the city, I feel like we're not chasing it out of an ego dream. There's more surrender into it, which is making us more free and joyful inside of it. And, um, Mm. that's that's it's it's beautiful to be in i think the good news of the ego dream somebody needs to have an ego dream or that church never gets planted it's true like there has there has to be ambition yes. in that that young naivete all of that yes i think the good news is because i do hear a lot of pastors get pretty hard on themselves but yeah. it's like god can use your false self and you know god can redeem it all yes so i think i think I think the ability for us to relax into the grace of God and get a little less uptight about our own idols. I'm not talking about significant toxic hidden secrets and addictions, but just these nuance, you know, every time I walk out on stage, is it because I enjoy the crowd or is it for the gospel? And the answer is yes. Yes. God can 
you know, God can take even my shadow side and redeem it for good. And that's, that's the whole, and that's if, been, if he couldn't, where would we be? I mean, the whole right. point is that he takes, he awakens faith and love in us, but it's not complete until we arrive at the new heavens and the new earth, you know? So he yeah. takes our incomplete, defective, somewhat selfish love. And he goes, well, I can work with that. Yeah. And he transforms it. So I would never say that my, the whole thing that we did in Denver was just an ego dream. I think that there was a lot of godliness in it. And the fire of ungodly ambition was certainly burning in that too. And so part yeah. of my, my own purification process has been the Lord going, how about we take you away from that so that you can mm-hmm. see that with clearer eyes? And now yeah. I want to give you the gift of being able to re-engage your calling in, with, in, out, of a, out of a purer heart than you had 10 years ago when you, when you were doing it. So... It was like what C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy, you know? Yeah. It's a severe mercy. I'm coming to believe, Andrew, one of the gifts that you're giving to us, not just on this show, but just as your life, as you share your life with us, is you really do seem to have come to terms with being an exactly human-sized pastor. Mm. And as I reflect on my own life, you know, I'm almost 50. I'm 49. I'm I'm becoming an old man. Right. I've always believed that, but it's only in the last maybe five years that I've allowed myself to feel grief and hurt Mm. because I think I've always been driven others focused, vision focused. And so I, I would believe the lie that if like there was a criticism that came in or something didn't go the way I thought it should go, well, I should, I shouldn't be hurt by that or I shouldn't Mm. be human. Mm -hmm. And by golly, it's been freeing to actually feel the pain and feel the grief and let it do its own work. Yes. You, You, you have the incredible gift of learning that lesson much earlier than most of us learned it, I think. Because mm. you're a youngin? 39. You, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, turning turn 40 this year. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you still had me beat by a number of years because you were learning that in your mid-30s. That's a beautiful gift. Well, I wouldn't, yeah, it was, it was a gift, you know? It was a gift. I wouldn't have chosen it for myself for sure. But as I, as I say in the book, I, you know, there's not a person that I've talked to who... Um, uh, who hasn't walked through a significant experience of collapse or deconstruction or everything fell apart and found themselves again on the other side who wouldn't say I would have never chosen for the, that for myself, but man, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I believe that, you know, who God made me through it. That's the yeah. gift. The gift is yeah. who, who we become in the presence of God and our ability to love God well and love other people. Well, mm-hmm. that's the, that is the greatest gift that God can offer us in this life is the chance to love him better and love people better. So whatever mm-hmm. frees us from our ego and our selfishness and our fear, those are, those are good things. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Hey, friends, we are going to take a break from the interview uh, because we want to just cover a case study. You know, a few weeks ago, I was doing a series on the podcast on criticism. And boy, one of the uh, one of the episodes that really got traction was when I talked about usual suspect critics. Every Every leader has them and particularly churches. We all have usual suspects that no matter what we do, no matter how many times we meet, there's nothing we can do to please them or, or to help them make progress. And, and the problem is we often keep trying. I, I, that was the case I was trying to make. So 
uh, I, I was talking to a friend of mine, David Rice. He's a member of Capable Life, my online community. And he had this situation. I just thought it would be really helpful for you guys to hear from David uh, because when he came in as the lead pastor, there was already a usual suspect there. And uh, the person was picking on the old previous pastor and then started going after David. So David, welcome. And I just thought it'd be helpful. Just tell us about the situation you inherited and then we'll kind of lead through what you did and the elders did and, and how it escalated. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks for the invitation uh, to the conversation. So uh, I've been the lead pastor of this small kind of rural church for seven years. When I came in, the church is over 100 years old. I followed a pastor that was here for 33 years. He retired. I started, I think, literally just a few weeks later, three or four weeks later. Um, so I inherited a congregation uh, that was grieving, but didn't really know they were grieving. Uh, they were, you know, very, very attached to the previous pastor. He was very well liked. Uh, in, a, in a sense, he was kind of the founding pastor, kind of built the church over three decades into what it was in the community. And um, yeah, there's this individual, I'll call him Brian. Um, he had been in the church his entire life. He was in his 60s at this point. Um, the land that our building sits on used to be his family's farm property. Uh, so he had a lot of emotional connection to his conception of what our church was and the invitation I was given as a new pastor from the elders and the lay leaders was to sort of lead our church in a different direction, uh, to train the leaders of the church to do the ministry of the church, which was not how the previous pastor functioned in the congregation. He was a fantastic pastor, but more of a chaplain. Uh, yeah. And so I was invited to do something very different, which you can imagine uh, is just deeply unsettling for everyone involved. Um, I honestly, if I'm honest, I didn't really know what I was stepping into. I was 32. I was pretty naive and kind of feeling ambitious, ready to kind of make my mark on a church, uh, for better or worse. So when things started to change, we started to make some small tweaks and just how we did things, you know, what Sunday morning looked like. We moved the kids ministry out of the basement to a different wing of the building, which was newer and being unused and things of that sort. It created, I would say now, using the language that I've learned from you, Steve, just a lot of anxiety in a lot of people, and everyone responds in different ways. So this particular person, uh, what he, the way he responded initially was he would he wanted to meet with me, and he would come with a yellow legal pad with bullet points. I I knew a bit of his reputation from the previous pastor, so I would set a timer for an hour. We would meet for an hour. When the timer went off, I would say thanks for coming. And I would just kind of let him talk. He would ask some questions, but these were sort of his, his laundry list of complaints around anything from theological things that might have come up in a sermon to organizational things that had changed, issues of authority and leadership. Uh, so we did this three times. At the end of each meeting, he would say, hey, I want to meet again. And I would say, okay. And at the end of the third meeting, when he asked to meet a fourth time, and again, this is all within my first year of being at the church, I just looked at him and said, Brian... I don't think we need to keep meeting. I I'm really don't think that anything I'm ever going to say is going to help you get what you want. And as your pastor, my, my sense is what you really need are relationships. You need folks that you can talk to about these things and kind of be a sounding board for you. And you need people that will meet you in the space. I'm not sure I'm the one that's, that's going to help you uh, beyond these meetings with that. And of course, he wasn't happy with that, so his tactics changed. 
uh, and namely what happened next. We used to have this kind of prayers of the people time on Sunday morning where folks could say prayers out loud uh, and we'd sing some Teze songs in between the prayers. He came with his laundry list on a yellow legal pad and turned it into a public prayer and read all of his complaints for five minutes in the middle of a worship service. And so, and again, we're, we're a relatively small church. Uh, everyone knows each other. So at the end of our, that service that morning, I found him out in our lobby and I said, hey man, that was not okay. And you, you cannot do that again. And I just need you to know, I'm here as the pastor. I'm not going anywhere. Um, you are always welcome to be part of this church, but that was not okay. That behavior is unacceptable. Let me jump in here, David, because mm-hmm. just just your countenance and the way you speak, you have a really calming presence. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how calm were you under the surface? Were you these these first three meetings where you set the timer? You you speak very calmly, but are you going home and anxious, or what's going on in you? Oh yeah, I was emotionally. I was pro- probably kind of a wreck. Not yeah. so much from the meetings that happened a bit after that kind of. Uh, quote unquote prayer. <laughs> I was a mess, but I, for better or worse, I could disassociate enough from it in the moment. I mean, immediately after that prayer happened, I had to preach a sermon. Um, and so I did. And I mean, we just continued on with our worship together. You know, everyone in the room is thinking like, what is going on right now? Um, now do you think that's the first time he's done that? Because he was, he had these behaviors with the previous pastor. So right. Were, were people surprised he, or is it like, ah, oh, this is what he does? Yeah, that's a great question. Not surprised. He had never done this very specific thing. But as far as those words that you use, Steve, this is what he does. That is how that was the, the response to everything he did in the culture of the church. Oh, that's just Brian. Yeah. Everyone knows that's how he is. Yeah. And after that happened, I think it was a Sunday evening. I called my predecessor. He and I have a good relationship. And I told him what happened. And his immediate response to me was, I should have worked harder to get him out of the church while I was there. We had literally changed years before I came. They had The church had changed its polity uh, so that he, this particular person, Brian, could no longer speak at business meetings because he would take them over. So we, we turned it into an annual celebration rather than an annual business meeting where no one could speak except the pastor. Like all of these things had been done, these end arounds, uh, rather than just address the issue. And the issue was he wanted to be in control of more than he like positionally was able to be in control of. And so the way that he would respond to anyone in authority was to just push and push and push and push. And I mean, he, this is what he did, not just in our church, but in our local community too. Everyone in a small town, you just sort of get used to how people behave. That's been my experience. Often it's because relationally, those same people, they plow your driveway, right? right? You buy your eggs from them. Like everyone is more interconnected. It's harder to get away from people in a small community. So, so the behavior had been excused for, for decades by the time I arrived. I was the new person in the system saying, looking around at all of my leaders and my new friends in my church saying, like, guys, this isn't normal. This is really not okay how he's behaving. And all of them were like, yeah, but that's just how Brian behaves. 
Yeah. So let's talk about, so you and the elders then decided to take some significant steps of escalation. And this is why I wanted to have you come on and share because I think so many people can relate to what you're saying. Like as you were talking, I'm thinking about all of the times that someone has mistreated me as a pastor. Hmm. And by the way, guys, I'm not saying that we're always mistreated or that we don't even sometimes mistreat others. I don't want to make it sound like we're always the victims. However, there are times where you're caricatured or where because of your leadership role, you are treated less than human. You're like a Hmm. punching bag. And that's what this guy was doing to you, David. And then when you you ask about it, people say, oh, it's just his way. Hmm. So what I love about what happens next is just lead us through you and the elders and the escalation to the, to the culmination of that. Yeah. So, um, in the ensuing months, um, he started to write some letters to me and to our elders. And these letters were just kind of really out there, strange, vaguely threatening, mentioning he has all kinds of guns, like deeply unsettling for me just personally, um, not overtly threatening, but in such a way where it scared me, frankly. Um, I actually called our local sheriff, who I knew, because it's a small town, and I said, hey, I don't know what to do about this. Um, and so we just kind of stayed in contact with each other, and uh, the sheriff and I. He was made aware of the situation. I, frankly, I was afraid for my family. You know, I think this was right after there had been a big shooting at a church in a small town in Texas. And so personally, I was on edge. Um, but what happened uh, is we started to meet with this guy, the elders and I, and he would bring his wife And one of his adult children started showing up, who is not a part of our church, but grew up in the church, lives locally. And then uh, also kind of a mediating party, a woman who's a a licensed professional counselor in our church who has known this guy for decades. And she kind of came to those meetings to help us work through how to talk through what was going on in a way that was helpful. Um, So we met with him a few more times. Um, I think as a young leader, I felt the need to try to defend myself and explain to him why I was making the decisions I was making, thinking I could still win him over. Yeah, thinking your insight would help him. Right, because my insight is just brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah, and you're you're fundamentally a decent human being. And if you could just see that, everything would be okay. So I remember in one of those early meetings, I got on a whiteboard, I drew diagrams. (laughs) And literally, he took a marker, came up to the diagram, and just scribbled over the whole thing and said, here, basically, in a way, it was sort of his, him being, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but him being a toddler saying, none of your ideas matter to me. Yeah. Because the way I'm feeling about what you're doing looks like the scribble. Oh, wow. Um, So we met a few more times. We put some boundaries around how he could interact with us as leaders and as a church. Um, We told him he wasn't allowed to lead any small groups or things like that. He could participate in anything. Um, And over time, it just, he continued to write letters and escalate things. Um, And we, so we stopped meeting with him. um, And eventually we, we told him via a letter um, that you're no longer welcome on our property that we just need some time to breathe and think and discern what to do because we've never had to deal with anything like this before. So that was communicated to him. I think we sent it certified mail to make sure that we had documentation that he received it. 
little side note, he lives next door to the church. So, uh, and I live behind the church. So in, in essence, he's my next door neighbor, even though there's about a half mile that separates us again, a rural community. Um, that's been hard. So, oh gosh, that's an understatement. Yeah. So we, um, we told him we need some time uh, to think and pray and discern what to do next. But having you here isn't working um, because you're continuing to push the boundaries that we're setting up for you. Um, he ignored that the next Sunday. I mean, he told us, hey, I'm going to show up anyway. So we had a couple sheriff's deputies here on site, one of which was a part of our church who was on duty. And they just waited for him. And when he showed up, they I watched the whole thing happen in one of our parking lots. They said, hey, you're not welcome here right now. You need to leave. He said, nope, you can arrest me. And so they arrested him. And then he requested my friend who's a sheriff's deputy, can you please walk me through the building? I want to. I want people to see what they're doing to me. And he's and, handcuffed at this point. And he's handcuffed at this point. And my friend who's a sheriff's deputy said, there's no way that's happening. <laughs> you're, you're just getting in the car right now. Um, so I took him to jail. Another local kind of ministry leader who he knew bailed him out. He was out that morning. Um, and then we entered into a process where the elders and I took about, I want to say two or three months to really work through, so what do we do now? How do we not just cut him off, but how do we offer a relationship? And frankly, my my uh, therapist friend, colleague, who's a part of our church, really pushed us in that direction too. And I agreed with her. She had some good insight in that that we need to set clear and firm boundaries, but we also need to offer a pathway to reconciliation if he wants to choose that pathway. So we spent a long time crafting. I wrote a, a six-page document outlining an entire, I think it was a six-month process that if you want to enter into a process of reconciliation, here's what it would look like. And we were recommending therapy to work through some of these things, how to hold difference, how to be in a community of people who saw things a little bit different than him and not completely lose his cool. Um, and so, yeah, we put all this in paper. We put it all in writing. Um, we sent it out to him. And then this was five or six years ago. I've never heard from him again. He did have a family member uh, pass away who was connected to our church still a few years ago. So we wrote to him then kind of preemptively and said, hey, you're welcome to come to the funeral. Here's the very clear boundaries. Like you can be here between 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. That's it. Um, you may not do X, Y, or Z while you're on the property. Um, we made it abundantly clear, which I know was deeply offensive to him in his time of grief. Um, but we still thought we needed to set those boundaries and be clear about them. So, um, and then my friend, small town, I know a lot of pastors in the community. Uh, he's at another church. So my friend who's there calls me every once in a while to say, Hey, how do I handle this? And I just say, I am so sorry, man. <laughs> um, but internally I'm thinking like, I'm so glad I'm not the one having to thank, deal with this. Thank you, God. Point. I'm not like that person. The, the famous yeah. <laughs> prayer from Luke 18. David, it's such a, when I say it's a wonderful story, I don't mean to betray the incredible pain that's mm. behind that story, but it is a wonderful story because of the way that you and the elders just gently escalated. And as I'm listening to it, it occurs to me, this is why church leadership is a unique challenge. Mm. In business, you can fire someone. Right. And, and in church, you kind of, if you fire them like this, then it's like, okay, see you Sunday. Like there's still this messy uh, set of relational, like, you know, you're wearing multiple hats with each other. Yeah. But, but you really, I, what I like about this is, is it, it costs you a lot because the gospel demands forgiveness and reconciliation. So you can't just cut him off. Right. 
But also, I really like that you you and the elders decided uh, we don't have to be treated like a punching bag. Like when, once yeah. he starts writing about guns and and intentionally putting you on the back foot, he kind of overplayed his hand. Like he exposed yeah. himself in a way. And and so for you guys to then say, okay, well, that's obviously now something that the sheriff has to get involved in. Yeah. Well, that was a great example. Um, how? How do you do at at resting with criticism now? Like that's one of the more extreme examples of that anyone's ever gone through. So how what's it like now when someone's coming at you? I think it depends on how well rested uh physically, emotionally, spiritually I I am at the moment, how grounded I am in in believing that God loves me when I am Frayed in those areas, which that's what the last year has been for all of us. Uh, criticism just cuts deep. So, you know, I had a phone call last week, someone saying, Hey, we're, we're, I'm leaving over politics. Um, and it's just hard. Hurt. I mean, those are, I cried. Those are just hard conversations when I'm, re- and then I went on vacation for a month and now I'm back. Um, and, um, I think when I'm rested and when I actually believe God loves me, which can be day to day for me sometimes, I I can hear that a little bit differently and be much more empathetic to that's just where that person is right now. Sometimes the criticism isn't, I would say often it's not really about me. Sometimes it is. And there's things I need to hear and receive and adjust and take in, um, which is, I mean, it's never easy. It always hurts. Because uh, it exposes something in me that I don't want exposed. But um, yeah, I think the more grounded I am in my emotional, spiritual, and physical health, uh, the more I'm just able to hear what's in it for me and what I can let go. Uh, when I'm really deeply frayed um, and at the end of my rope, I, I just can't separate those things. And I take it very personally. Yeah. David, thanks so much for coming on. I, I just think it's an exactly human-sized situation. I think so many people appreciate hearing what you did and what was going on in you. Um, you're a member of the Capable Life community. Uh, mm-hmm. Just give us a taste of what what's helpful about it to you or what's been either one helpful aspect of it for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going through some of the, uh, really the Foundations video series still. Um, I mean, getting to learn from you, Steve, getting to interact with some people, most of which I don't really know. Uh, but even I'm realizing even having a safe, uh, closed place to put some thoughts out there instead of putting them on Twitter mm-hmm. has been helpful for me, you know, to say things like, I don't know what to do about Christian nationalism in my church. You know, I'm kind of at the end of my rope with this, and I don't know how to lead through this as a pastor. Uh, putting that in capable life has been helpful for me, uh, both to be encouraged, to have folks offer some thoughts. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, it's www.capablelife.me. We only open it up once in a while. So you might go to the site and see that we have a waiting list. There'll be a date there of when we open up next. Stick your name on the waiting list. If you happen to catch us when we're open, you can join now. Otherwise, we'll get in touch when we open it again. David, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your heart. Yeah, thanks, Steve.
Yeah, Andrew, the gauntlet's coming, and uh, I can already tell you're going to be fine. You know, some guests, they actually answer it from hiding under the table and rocking themselves into a corner, but I think you'll be fine. But before we get to the gauntlet, just two questions. Mm -hmm. One One of the great gifts of your book is you actually either introduce us or get us engaged with modern and old saints. Yeah. So who is your favorite desert father or mother? If you are forced to choose one, who's your favorite and what, what do you love about her or him? Oh boy. Um, so I'm actually writing a, my second book, Steve, is on the desert fathers and mothers. And uh, it releases next year with Nav Press. So I'm deep in it. And I am fascinated by all of these people. They're just, they're just incredible. Some of them are completely eccentric and bizarre. Yes. Um, yes. So you have to, you know eat the eat the hay and spit out the sticks or whatever as they say but they they capture they just capture the radical life of holiness in such a beautiful way and i do love i love abba joseph i use the story of abba joseph and abba lot in all flame that's where the title of the book comes from where abba joseph stretches his hands to the heavens his fingers become 10 lamps of fire if you will you can become yeah. all flame well what's beautiful about joseph is how um how what's your thing about the, you're a right-sized human or something. And he's like, yeah, exactly human size, exactly human size. Like Joseph is one of these guys who knows his limitations and is very comfortable in them. So there's this great story where Joseph is in sitting in this circle of monks and another monk is leading a discussion on scripture. (laughs) And, uh, and the monk asks, he goes around the circle and he asks each person their interpretation And with each person's interpretation of the scripture, the monk who's leading the discussion goes, well, you haven't understood it. You haven't understood it. You haven't understood it. Then he gets to Joseph and he goes, Joseph, what do you think about this scripture? And Joseph, who knows the Bible well and has spent a lifetime following God and surely has great opinions, thoughtful opinions, accurate opinions on scripture, Joseph goes, I don't really know. (laughs) And the monk who's leading the discussion goes, Abba Joseph has spoken the truth where he said, I don't know. And I I like that. I, I, I think the ability, there's something about, to me, any genuine saint as they're growing up into holiness I think we start realizing that the the magnitude of what we don't know is always and can only increasingly be so much greater than what we do know. So to come to the reality of God and the reality of the beauty of creation and the reality of human beings in front of us and to be able to say, to be able to fall silent in the face of that, mm. I don't know, but praise God. Mm. He's a mark of holiness. So I love that about, about Joseph. I would love to be the kind of man that gets to the end of his life and I, I don't have weighty opinions about things anymore. I'm more just kind of captured by the awe of everything. That would be a great way to end. Yeah. Having a deeper encounter with a mystery. Yeah. Greater appreciation for it. Yeah. You know, you're right about Bonhoeffer and Mother Teresa and of course, Rich Mullins. And yeah, you know, Rich is a guy that many of us grieved, even though we didn't know him. And, and, He's also a guy that was phenomenal about getting around. The amount of people that yeah. felt like they were a close friend of Rich's is yeah. off the charts. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Rich Mullins song? Um, yes, it's the one. Um, oh, and now it's now it's eluding me. It's the when the wind the wind blows past Nebraska. Uh, let's see the calling out your name. Calling, calling out, out your name. name. That. Where he celebrates worship in the fury of a pheasant's wing. And yes. He, he can drive through Kansas and worship to our earlier point about Oklahoma. Oh, my gosh. Yes. His appreciation for the presence of God in the created order so resonates with me. And that I think more Christians need to come to grips with that. You know, I, I mean, traditionally, the, the um, 
uh, in Christianity, we talked about how God reveals himself in the book of scripture and the book of nature. And I think evangelicals in particular are pretty good at the book of scripture piece, but we're a little skeptical of the book of nature. We don't know. Well, you know, yeah, we don't want to get a little pantheistic. pantheistic creation worship. We don't want to do that, but God has given us his presence in the givenness of things. And I think that we can find deep consolation in them. The last couple of years for me have been an experience of just appreciating that, that there are these natural cycles and rhythms of death and life in creation that we also are part of. And submitting to the conditions of our creatureliness is part of how we experience joy and rich. Like he so understood that. So I, that that song, Calling Out Your Name to me, is is such a beautiful one. I love that one. I love the energy of it. Uh, mm. He had such a passionate soul you know, there's just so much emotion in him. And in songs like that, you just feel it pouring out. So I think that would be a favorite. Uh, folks, for the last 10 years, I've taught a class at our church on that. That, that is the heart of my book. It's actually how my book got published. Um, and in, in our church context, we meet every other week for two hours. And then there's two weeks in between. And we put people into small peer groups where they can love each other and be trusted because it's very vulnerable material. You know, the managing leadership anxiety material is mm-hmm. vulnerable and brave. And uh, for a long time, I've been trying to figure out how do I help others have this experience? Because what's going on is is more and more I'm going to churches and businesses and I'm doing like a three hour or a one day conference and, and it's fun. I love it. Mm. But I, I know that the people in that one day are not going to change if mm-hmm. they don't stay mm-hmm. in it. You know, mm-hmm. it's soul health and it's, it's more about a regular trip to the gym than it is yeah. about more content. And so in January, I launched Capable Life. It's www.capablelife.me. Mm. And it's, it's my best effort to replicate what we've been doing for a decade at our church. So if you go there, what you'll find is little 10-minute videos just teaching a tool a week. You, can, you could do 10 minutes a week. Mm. We have a confidential online forum where you can bear your soul in a, behind a password. It's safe. It's other faith leaders like you. We do monthly coaching over Zoom. And then we do masterclasses. Uh, the next masterclass coming up is lowering reactivity while staying connected. Hmm. And so you can go to www.capablelife.me. You can you can join for a month. You can join for a year. Um, here's the deal. If 2020 did a number on your soul, 2021 is not going to be any different unless you're, you do something different. So that's my offering. I'm not the only person doing this kind of work. There's a lot of great people helping you integrate emotional health and spiritual health. But uh, if you need a resource, go check it out. And if that's helpful to you, uh, that's thrilling. And Andrew, to that end, uh, now we're going to invite you to brace yourself like a man. And we inflict the gauntlet of anxiety on you. So just first of all, let's just do a, a, a softball. Just name two or three uh, ongoing sources of anxiety in your leadership. You, you know, if mm. you know that this is something that's going to trigger anxiety for you, mm, I I think uh, if I if I ever feel as though I've got something to prove, you know, something something is really on the line with my performance. Um, that's a that's a trigger for me, and um, I, I think. For me, the last three and a half years at New Life have been an experience of the Lord flushing that out of my system and mm. graciously coming from the, uh, the small church that we led in Denver, 500 or so people to this sprawling megachurch. Um, 
I think in the old demon of needing to prove myself, all of a sudden it came back in full force and everything felt to me like, okay, you're on the big stage now. Like, can you make it here? And if you can't make it here, what's going to happen to you? What's the next step for you? You know, all of the taunting of, of those demons really. And, um, so the Lord is graciously, I, I I'm so blessed to be on a great team where nobody's throwing that pressure on me. So I know it to be all, it's my own internal stuff. So it's less than it has been. You know, the first couple of years that I was out here, I think I felt it really profoundly and the Lord is graciously deconstructing that. So I'm grateful for that when I feel like there's something on the line, though I can get pretty anxious. And then I think the other piece of it is that I really am, I'm an introvert. Um, in the Myers-Briggs, I'm INFJ and uh, mm. my, my N and my F are super high. And so I really do need a lot of space to recharge and refuel, to re-enter my mind palace, you know, as one of my friends jokingly refers to it, and the palace of my soul, and just kind of get inside there and see everything again. I, the, my need for that is so high. And if I feel like that need is not being met, and then I have to go and be with people, you know, be on, as it were, um, I will fear that I'm not going to be as present with them as I want to be, because I know what that situation demands. And that'll kind of cause me to spin a little bit. So life for me is a lot of management, just making sure that the ecosystem of my life, you know, times away and times of engagement, that those are in the right kind of balance. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you know when you're anxious, whether it's in your body or mind or your habits, how, how are you aware that you're in anxiety's grip? I, I have become very, I don't, I don't know if you would say this too, Steve, but I've become more aware that my body is never lying to me. Mm. It's never lying to me. So when I'm in an anxious space, I will feel an ache in the lower right side of my back. It'll just kind of creep in and start getting kind of tense and I'll get kind of, uh, okay. And I just know that's, be, okay, you are mishandling something at this point, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you're either carrying a burden that Jesus, Jesus hasn't called you to carry right here, right now. I'll identify that. Or you're carrying something that he's asked you to carry, but you're doing it in the wrong way. And so it's throwing you. So check yourself in your spirit. So that one. And then if my mind starts spinning a little bit and all of a sudden I start anticipating possible negative outcomes yeah. and then that NF in me goes, right. All of a sudden yeah. my world becomes dark very fast. And I have to return just to the simplicity of Paul's comment in second Corinthians, where he says that we're not competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but God has made us competent. And so the recollection in my own spirit that like who you are and how you are in this moment is enough for what God's called you to in this moment that helps recenter me. But I, I feel it in the mind and I feel it, I feel it in my body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, great answer. You know, we, we all bring our family of origin into the workplace, Yeah, uh, whether we want to or not. Yeah. What would be one asset that has been handed down from your family of origin and what would be one liability in your leadership? It, it's the same thing. It's both an asset and a liability. Um, one of my friends years ago described Arnt's as uh, the Arnt family as a, this is not entirely accurate what, what he's saying, but there's an aspect that he's getting right here. He said, you all are like a, y'all are like a group of razorback warriors, you know, like my perception of you is that you just like get it done, you know, and like stuff doesn't affect you and it bounces off of you and you're just champions, you know, and there's an element of that that is correct. I, I aren'ts are not, I come from a long, like, so Steve, I'm the fifth generation firstborn male on my dad's side of the family. 
like there's just this like sort of art of manliness thing in the art mm. family that like we are men of principle and men of character and we get it done and we don't quit that element. That's like a really important part of my self-identity. Like we're not quitters. Like if we say that we're going to do something, we see it all the way through to completion. That's part of why leaving Denver was so challenging because I had to constantly check myself. Am I just throwing in the towel here? Am I quitting? Like it was cha- a challenge yeah. to my self-identity. It actually has served me well. Like just that, like, no, you're going to like persevere, see it through all, all the way through to completion. So that's an asset. It's also a liability Mm. because there have been some situations in my adult life where the right thing to do actually would have been waving the white flag of surrender and saying, I've hit my limit. It's too much for me. It's time for me to walk away. You know, like John O'Donohue talks about being excessively gentle with yourself. Yes. That's not a thing that comes naturally to me. What comes naturally to me is like, come on, man, get it done. You know, see it through. Even if you have to die doing it, like go for it. Like that, that the, the willingness to become a martyr (laughs) is not, that's not foreign to my, you know, the psychological disposition that's given by my family of origin. What is harder for me is going, sometimes you just need to be able to say it's too much. I can't do it. (laughs) <laughs> need help. That's been harder to come by for me. So good. Yeah. Well, then this question might be related to that. I, I love that answer. I think one of the guaranteed ways a leader can be anxious is when they make a mistake in public. Mm. Would you be willing to tell us about a recent mistake you made in public and then how you recovered from it? Well, I'll, maybe I'll give you two. Uh, one's more lighthearted. I have found, uh, you know, because we preach every just about every Sunday, always yeah. public leadership. You can bring a lot of, a leader can bring a lot of anxiety into making sure that like everything is just right. Yeah. And, um, I, one of the things that I've learned, I'm constantly putting my foot in my mouth publicly, just tripping over my words or saying something stupid. And you can have a lot of fear about that, but I've actually found that when those moments, when you stumble over your words or you're just not, it's just not coming out right in the message. If you just have a good laugh about it in the message, it's so, it actually warms the room up, you know? it creates a moment of hospitality where everybody can enter into the humanness. So I wish more leaders would just would like put less pressure on themselves to get it exactly right and just get up there and say what they need to say. That's a lighthearted example. I think a bigger one for me has been, um, uh, and this is, uh, this is an ongoing threshold of formation for me for sure. Um, but I, I am surrounded by four of the best leaders that I know at new life. So pastor, our senior pastor, Brady Boyd, incredible leader, incredible communicator. Um, my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam, incredible leader, incredible communicator. Daniel Grothy is like, uh, he's a living legend. I mean, he is like, he is like the consummate Eugene Peterson uh, protege. Yeah. And then a guy that not a lot of people know, and also an incredible communicator, Pastor Jason Jackson on our yeah. team, yeah. leads so much stuff at our church. And is also, and he's like a Hebrew scholar and is this incredible communicator. And when you're surrounded by all of these people that do so many things so well, it can be very tempting to be uncomfortable with who you are and you start shading your personality and your way of being into the way that they do things. And uh, I think re-engaging congregational leadership in the last year for me exposed that as a a constant temptation for me. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I felt like physically I was breaking down because every Sunday I was trying to be like Pastor Brady or I was trying to be like Pastor Glenn or or Daniel or Jason or whoever. 
And I remember like crying, like I, I wandered into Brady's office on Tuesday morning. We have our 9 a.m. weekly teaching team meeting. We get together and talk about how the weekend went. And I sat down and <laughs> Brady's going around the circle. All right, guys, how did it go at your congregation? And when it comes to how did New Life East go? I mean, like the, the waterworks, you know, I and I just told them, I was like, this is killing me physically. I'm trying to be like you guys. And I hear and now repent of doing that. I'm mm. sorry. I, like I dishonored you mm. by trying to do what only you guys can do. And I also dishonored myself by denying the unique gift that God has made me to be for the world and for the church. And I'm sorry about that. And so I think I'm more aware of that now than I have been. But that that that's a very public leadership mistake. I think that a lot of us can make is that we go, we see how so-and-so does it or how this person does it or how that person does it. And so we go, well, because they've proved that it works. If I just do things like them, then I'll be safe. And that's what we're really doing is we're trying to secure ourselves, you know, and you have to throw that stuff off. You know, it's David stripping off Saul's armor and going, I don't know, I'm just a shepherd boy, five smooth stones. That's what I've got. I think all of us need to come to that place. And that's been a, that's been a big one for me recently. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up with the, the end question. When in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Oh man, when I feel heard, when I feel heard, my inner life is complex and um, constantly a jumble of emotions and thoughts and feelings, um, 95% of which are completely illusory, but they feel, feel really real to me. Mm. And when I'm with a person who can contain all of that angst, they can just receive it and go, you're going to be okay. It's all good. Thanks for sharing that. You know, that's, I feel very loved when I feel heard. And I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by um, some, my wife of 21 years who is constantly receiving most of that and several really good friends and colleagues, honestly. Like there's no, I've, one of the things that's great about new life, there's no penalty for honesty. So if I'm crashing into Daniel or Glenn or Brady's office and vomiting a lot of emotion on them, it's all good. And those are really, those are gratifying moments. I feel safe and I feel loved when I feel heard for sure. Andrew, this this whole interview to me has been a gift, and I know I'm really excited for my listeners to hear hear from you, folks. It's Andrew Arndt. The book is All Flame. You can chase Andrew through the Essential Church podcast through his book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, just a guy worth learning from. So, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your heart with us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's been a gift. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.